We are in Acts chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 38. This comes in the middle of the speech that Gamaliel has given to the Pharisees in the middle of of Acts chapter 5. He says in verse 38, So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they called to the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Last week we were in this setting and honored our graduates as they were gathered with us and over the next weeks we'll be hopefully in some of their homes in the receptions that are announced in the bulletin this morning. I hope you'll avail yourself to to uh, meet them in those occasions and those places. But as we shared together last week, let me just bring you up to to where we're at this morning, and then we're going to look at the last part of that text that that we read in its entirety last week, in which Pastor Jason just read again. But if you remember, I, I proposed at the beginning of that message, if I were to have two hands and reach them out, and in the right hand I would say, here I possess a quest for truth, or in my left hand I possess truth itself. That my suspicion in our culture today, in the Western culture, that most people would choose a quest for truth over truth itself. Because we have come to believe what our culture has tried to inundate us with is that there is no truth. Or that truth for me can be different than truth for you. In other words, I can come to a truth that is true because it has to do with subjective kind of things inside of me and I've decided for me this is my truth and you've decided for you that is your truth and what validates it is that I decided and you decided. And in fact, those two truths can be absolutely contradictory in our culture today, and that's okay. They're both true. That's what we've bought in our culture today, in Western culture today. Um, and certainly I said we need to be lifelong learners. Choosing truth over a quest for truth does not mean you're not a lifelong learner, that you learn more about the truth that's there I said and used the illustration, a doctor would, we wouldn't go to a doctor who treated cancer today as they can, as they treated it 75 years ago. That would be foolish because they've learned more of truth and practice that. But the point I wanted to make is that we live in a culture today that believes for the most part and you, particularly the younger you are, have have been influenced by this more, really, because you have nothing to balance it with, that that truth is kind of an evasive thing, and you have to go on a quest for this truth, but you'll never really find it. It's just the quest, and you'll, you'll be on a quest all of your life. And so that seems more appealing because of what our culture has taught. But that's diametrically opposed to what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that there is a truth. And that truth was revealed to us. It isn't something we made up. It doesn't have to do with how our subjective feelings about it intersect it. It is true. No matter what we feel, it is truth. Now, certainly we don't know 
all of that truth. There's a sense in which we learn more about it. But that is different than saying it's an it's elusive kind of thing that we make up as we go along. The, the scriptures teach us very clearly that the truth was revealed to us. That in then these last days, God has spoken to us and he's spoken to us in his son who is the way, the truth, and the life. Biblical Christianity teaches that. And as we went along last week, we said that that's a despised truth today. And it is despised because the whole idea that you can know truth is not believed by most of our culture today. I say that to say now we come to the story of of uh, this text and we hear the warning that is given to the religious leaders in this text the warning that if this is of God it will last and if it's not it will fizzle out and it's interesting in this text as we as we walk that progression that they take the advice of this man who says that this respected leader among the Pharisees and Sadducees His wisdom is taken, but it's interesting to me how it says it in the scripture. It says they took his advice, and then in verse 40, they beat them and charged them not to speak in his name anymore. I mean, they took the advice. The advice was not to kill them, but they still beat them. I mean, you don't want to miss that in the text. They, They beat these apostles. They warned them again. Very sternly, don't speak in this name anymore. Don't declare this truth that you have anymore. And they sent them on their way. And as we read in the text, we see what happened next right after that. It says, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name That's an amazing text. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for this truth. They believed it was true. They believed it was a truth that had been delivered to them. You must understand that's what Christianity proposes. As intolerant as that may seem in our culture today, that is what Christianity proposes proposes that there is a truth and that truth came in the person of Christ to us here. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to just for a moment before we come to the table is unpack what causes people to rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer. That seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? But it wasn't. It wasn't. And because of that, it just goes on to say that the numbers of people coming to faith were increasing right into chapter 6. The numbers were increasing of people who were seeing the reality in all of this and professing the name of Christ. But let me just quickly this morning say three or four things about what I think causes people to react that way? What caused the the apostles to react that way? The first thing that I would say to you is they they understood the absolute necessity of his suffering, Christ's suffering. They understood the absolute necessity of the suffering of Christ. 
It is, it is bedrock to this whole thing. I read this morning Isaiah chapter 53. They understood it was the will of the Father to crush him. It was the will of the Father to crush him. Now, that wasn't very old to them. Just a few weeks before that, their whole world, as we said before, fell apart when Christ was crucified and put in the tomb. And they didn't know what they were going to do. They were going to try to pick up their lives and go on, but they didn't know if they could do it. But all of that changed when God opened their eyes to the absolute necessity. The bud may have a bitter taste, and it had a bitter taste for them on Good Friday. But sweet was the flower of Sunday. You see, what was, what was the end of their world all of a sudden revolutionized them. That he had to suffer. It was absolutely paramount that the father crush the son. Now, what, what was paramount about it? And this is, this is the point at which our culture has trouble as well with this. Um, they understood that the crushing had to do with the honor of God's name. They understood that. It, it certainly took care of their sin, and, and that was part of it, but they didn't start there. It had to do with the honor of God's name. You see, they knew, they knew that, that in order for their sin to be cared for, it was paramount that the son be crushed. But they also knew that the son didn't have to be crushed because their sin didn't have to be forgiven. We, in our culture today, again buy into things that somehow God owes us something, that, that he has a debt, that the coming of Christ was God fulfilling a debt to us to forgive our sin, to make a way for us. The truth of the matter is, that is not true. Fundamentally and foundationally, the reason Jesus had to be crushed was the only way that God's name could be vindicated. And secondly, he could forgive people in that, in that forgiveness. You see, he, his name was at stake. If, if you start with man, if you start a theology of salvation with man, it will take you to the wrong place. It fundamentally had to do with God, God's honor. God wanting to save a people, but the only way he could do it is by the vindication of his justice. That's the gospel. That, that brings a new dimension to the gospel. And it's, it's what caused them to see this is absolutely paramount. This is not optional. If God is going to forgive sin, Christ had to suffer. There was no other way that God's name could be vindicated in that. They understood their sin. There was a repentant sense about their sin and that this, this that God had done was the only way that man could be reconciled to God. The only way. There weren't multiple ways, only one. Now this is foolishness. This is foolishness to the world. The Bible says the gospel is foolishness to the unbeliever. 
that doesn't make any sense to him. It's, it's not only foolishness, but it's an offense. The gospel is an offense to unbelievers. And, and in many sectors, they want to, they want to take Christianity, but they want to take the death of Christ out of it. And these disciples would have never thought that was a possibility. They knew their sin. And they knew for God to forgive their sin meant his justice was at risk. He couldn't just sweep it under. He, he had to defend and, and uphold his justice. And the only way he could do that was that the payment had to be made. It absolutely had to happen. The suffering of Christ was not optional. And you see, that's why they would say there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. That's what Christianity believed. That's what they believed because it was going to take a death and a suffering and a sacrifice in order for us to be reconciled. Now, let me try to relate this to to today a bit, to our culture today, to, to what's happening. This message is incredibly um, offensive. It is incredibly offensive to our world. The idea that there is a truth. The idea that Christianity proposed to say we this is the truth. For us to say this is the truth is incredibly offensive in our culture. It was offensive in that day, but it's it's equally offensive today where we live. It will not be popular. And, and the only way that there will be any popularity in it is if people see their sin. I said to you, one of the things that I've walked through the book of Acts is just a, a weight of realizing unless God causes this message to cause people to see their sin, they will treat it as foolishness and, and they, will, they will become angry. Angry at this message. Angry at this message. Because it so goes against what they've been taught. That we just kind of find truth on our own. Now, the illustration is this. We, we just, in the last days, have been confronted by our own Supreme Court who is going to rule on an issue that is incredibly out there today in our world. The whole idea of, of gay marriage. It's, it's everywhere it's been everywhere for a long time. And, and what has happened in our culture, there has been a tilting that has happened now that, that a majority of people now begin to believe that that ought to be the law of the land, which has incredibly changed the landscape of things, particularly among younger people. The millennial uh, age is even a higher percentage of, of how that tipping point has happened in our culture today. Now, I want to be very careful, and I can't say everything I'd like to say at this point about that issue, uh, particularly the issue of someone who may even be here this morning. I don't, I don't, I don't take it lightly. So you, you may be here this morning, and, and the whole issue of, of uh, sexual identity is, is a difficult thing for you, and you're confused about it, and you're struggling with it. It's very possible that it's here this morning, and I want to say to you that that God is a God who wants to help in that, and and as you resist that, 
and and see it as what I think the scripture says is it is not the right thing and and call it what it is the 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 idea that to act that out in any way as any kind of um, situation like that outside of marriage is that's that's sin and as you fight it as that and come against it and resist it and and seek help for that we want to be redemptive I don't say this in a I don't say this in a vacuum my my only sister I've not said this in a public setting like this but my only sister has lived with a woman for a number of years and they have two children. So I don't say it out of a vacuum. Um, but I, what I want to say with that preface is we want to be redemptive for the one who struggles with that and struggles against that and, and want to come alongside you and help you in that struggle. But there is a difference between that struggle and where we are at in much of our world today with this issue because much of our world today for me to even say today that come against that sin creates great anger in our culture today. And again, it would, it would cause great um, resistance in much of our culture today because of how we view it and how we see it today. The whole idea of, of, of gay marriage, again, is to, to say anything against that is you will have wrath come upon you because of that. But the Judeo-Christian ethic, I think scripture clearly teaches that marriage is one man and one woman in union. And I say to you that that probably, that particular issue, that issue alone is going to be the place where I think resistance is going to come upon the church. If you want to strengthen the church, if you want to cause the church to move to deeper commitment, one of my friends one day said, just persecute it. And I think that at that point, at that point of the issue of marriage is going to create difficulty. I think probably extreme difficulty if we continue down the road we are, that very likely we will all pay a price if we hold to that view of marriage. Now, the illustration I want to make, leave that there and come to this illustration. The illustration I want to make is this in regards to what I'm talking about because I want to make a point. The point is this, that there are certainly secular people who would not propose to be Christians who have that view, many of them. That does not trouble me as much as people who want to hold on to Christianity and have that view. That's the part that is the most difficult to deal with. Those who would want to rewrite Scripture and would want to say that whenever there were prohibitions against that kind of activity, those prohibitions were promiscuous kind of situations and they never were meant for a committed relationship. They were not prohibitions for a committed um, two-man relationship or two-woman relationship in, in commitment, not promiscuity, they would say. I think they're wrong. I think they're wrong. But there are people who want to, to stay connected to Christianity, rewrite Scripture, redefine marriage, and, and be able to hold on to Christianity. Who would not say, 
that it's a sin. You understand. They would not say that that is a sin. Just like any other sin that we battle against. Different people have different sins they battle against. That propensity. And to say that, they would call us narrow and bigoted. And they would want to hold on to Christianity at the same time. This is, this is the point I want to make. I venture to say to you, the people who want to stay connected to the church, who don't see that as sin, would also, would also react almost as violently to the statement that there is no name under heaven whereby we must be saved. And by that mean that this is the truth, that there are not multiple routes to heaven. There is one road to heaven, and it is Christ. And the reason it is Christ is because his death absolutely had to happen in order for man to be reconciled to God. You see, these early disciples believed that. They didn't believe there were multiple roads, and they lived in a culture like that. There was only one way, this name, and that's what was getting them in trouble. And I would venture to say to you, the people who want to hold on to Christianity but don't want to call that sin, sin, would also come at you almost as violently if you propose the statement that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to me, comes to the Father but by me, and there is no other way to come to the Father. The same kind of anger would fill that. You see, the point I'm making is these disciples, these disciples were feeling the heat and the pressure because they believed that this death was absolutely necessary and there was no other way. Jesus didn't just die for a select few who wanted to get on his road. They didn't do that. He didn't do that. If we're to be reconciled to God, Christianity would teach Jesus is the reconciler. It's important to make that point. It's important to understand that, that the thing that caused these men to rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer is because they knew how absolutely important it was. And they had the privilege of identifying with that suffering now. That was the joy they had, to identify with that suffering. The second thing that I would say is that they sense blessing in that suffering. They sense blessing in that suffering, and and that strengthened them. And I believe that these disciples sensed a power in their lives because they were following Christ in this road of suffering that they knew was attributable to the fact that they were willing to do that, that they were willing to follow him in that suffering, in that road of suffering. You see, the scripture says they prayed for boldness, but don't hear that as arrogance. It was, it was humility in the midst of that boldness. And, and what caused it and helped that to stay humble was the suffering that went with it. It wasn't boldness that, that we were going to win and, and, and conquer everybody. They knew that to present this message was going to create incredible opposition. It was increasing opposition that was coming to them and it was going to get hotter and hotter and hotter. But at the same time, many were coming to faith. I read the scripture, it says, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, 
They were continu- more and more people were embracing this message and finding reconciliation with God, but at the same time, the temperatures kept getting turned up on these disciples. Kept getting turned up more and more and more. And so they sensed that part of the suffering, there was blessing in that. God was blessing in the midst of that. I think it would be the same kind of thing that, that the scripture says, that my power is made perfect in weakness. Power is made perfect in weakness. There is a power that came to them because of their weakness in that suffering that they knew was a reality in their life. The third thing that, that I think caused that rejoicing to happen in them is that they saw it as the means God used to open their eyes and also the eyes of others. In other words, the thing that opened the disciples' eyes was, was the resurrection, really. Um, but, but when the resurrection came, they went back to realize that what they thought was the most horrible thing that could have ever happened, the suffering and death of Christ, was really the best thing that could ever happen to them. And so the means God used to open their eyes was to see the connection between that suffering and their reconciliation. As God opened their eyes to see that, that it, it took the father crushing the son to bring that reconciliation. They realized that was the means that God also was going to use to propagate that gospel. And the privilege of they had to suffer I think they realized it was in that suffering, their own suffering. Uh, We've used this other times. I don't want to go back to it, but in Colossians, as we fill up what is lacking in regards to Christ's affliction, what is lacking? The personal presentation of that affliction to the world. Christ is at the right hand of the Father. So there's a sense in which it is that privilege of sharing in that suffering that opens the eyes of the world to the reality. I think it was the suffering of the disciples being willing in the face of opposition to continue to declare there's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved because they knew this was the only thing that would reconcile them. They felt a privilege to be able to walk in that same suffering. There's an illustration of that at the cross in Matthew, excuse me, Mark chapter 15 and verse 39. Let me, let me read it to you here this morning. Just listen. This is... This is Jesus on the cross, and it says that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then it says, and when the centurion, when the soldier who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, he said, because he saw truly this man was the son of God. Truly, this man who suffered was the Son of God. You see, his eyes were opened. And I think the means God uses, and it may be the very means God's going to use in our world today, is our willingness to suffer. And I say to you, I, I, I say to you, I'm not, I'm not saying this in a negative way. I don't mean that. 
poor me, but I believe that there is coming upon the church. There is coming upon the church, and it may be the issue that I talked about today, it may be other issues, but to declare that this suffering was absolutely necessary because it's the only way you can be reconciled to God. To hold to that message is going to get less and less popular unless unless God moves upon our nation and people all of a sudden begin to see their sin in, in, in a magnitude that we have not seen in these days. You see, that's why I go back to say the only answer, the only answer, and we're coming to much more of a heated environment, we are to declare the message and suffer if it be for the sake of declaring the message. You will be scoffed at and worse. You will be. You will be, young person. I say to you young people today, you will. You will. It will not be popular. Our culture, it is not popular. As I began today, it is not popular to say there is a truth. It seems arrogant to our culture. And that's why we dare not make it about us. We dare not pick up our sword to enforce it. Christ is our life. We've said that before. He is our life. And and if he's our life, he will enable us to give our lives away. In fact, even to be able to rejoice in that suffering because we realize it is the way that God opens the eyes of people. Maybe he'll choose to open it to so many that the opposition will, will fall back. But even so, I'm going to declare it. It is the truth. It is why we come to this table today. This, this is not optional. What this table represents is not optional. The disciples knew that. I hope you know that. It is precious. And I pray we'll treat it as such this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning to your table. We come to a table that we were called to do in remembrance of you. Lord, you didn't, you didn't do this for just a slice of our world, for the ones who might call themselves Christians and other people could find their reconciliation another way. That was never, never what the disciples believed. It is not the truth. Christianity proposes that this is the way of reconciliation. And I pray, Father, it will so grip us and so possess us that we'll be willing to give our lives away, that we'll be able to, to, to count it a privilege to suffer as Christ did. Lord, help us. Pray you'll strengthen us at your table today. I pray, Father, you'll work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Elders are going to come this morning. We're going to receive the Lord's Supper today as we contemplate all that it means for us. In one of the messages in the series, I 
I reiterated, I think it was last time we came to the Lord's table. Um, There's a reason Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. That we need to be reminded again and again of the absolute necessity of what Christ did. This is the bread of the body of Christ, or the bread that represents the body of Christ. I'd ask for you to take it and hold it, and we'll receive it together. was the will of the Father to crush the body of the Son. It was the only way. Take heed and be 
grateful. to us the blood of Christ again take and hold it and we'll take together Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with Himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. On high with Christ, my Savior and my God, with Christ, my Savior and my God, my name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in him he stands. No tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart.
hope this morning as you take this that you realize your sin was great. Whatever your sin was, it was great, so great that for my sin to be forgiven, this had to happen. There was nothing else that could bring reconciliation. Nothing. Nothing could uphold the justice of God in light of my sin if God were to forgive me. It's not about the sin of another. It's about my sin, your sin. Take and drink and be grateful. Stand and pray. Father, as I shared last week, as I hear myself say the things that I said then and say today, Except, God, you had changed my heart. Except you had opened my eyes as you opened the eyes of that centurion. I would resist what I said. I would violently resist what I said today. It's only by your grace. It's only by your grace. And I pray, Father, today that that you will help us. If there's a place of resistance in the heart of of one here today that they would go back to the scripture they would read what it says about the death of your son again and again and again the disciples declared there was no other way they were convinced of that father convinced to the point of of going right back out, the scripture says, right after they had been flogged and been warned not to speak in that name, it says they just continued to meet in the temple courts. They continued to share the same message. Lord, I pray, I pray you will help us to see that the joy they had rested in the absolute necessity of the suffering of your son and they felt like there was no other place that they should go but to follow in his steps. Lord, help us to be willing to do that. Help us to be willing to give our lives away for that message, to stand firm for it, but do it in a way that the world might see, Lord, in the midst of our willingness to pay a price for it, humbly pay a price for it, the reality of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go in God's peace.